1: Fiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that nearly every issue that shows up in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant.
2: And I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, the author of the novel Love Marriage.
1: Today, we're continuing our conversation about the effects of mass incarceration on American communities, a topic so big that we're devoting two consecutive episodes talking to writers who've included it in their work. Later in this episode, we'll speak to Damaris B. Hill. Whose forthcoming book is a history of incarcerated African American women in the US. But first, we're thrilled to speak to the author of An American Marriage here with us for the first half of today's show.
2: In addition to Tayari Jones' latest book, a 2018 Oprah's Book Club selection, Tayari is the author of the novels Leaving Atlanta, The Untelling, and Silver Sparrow. She's the winner of numerous fellowships and awards. Silver Sparrow was named to the National Endowment for the Arts Big Read Library of Classics in 2016. She now teaches writing at Emory University. Terry, we're honored to have you with us. Welcome to the show. Thank you.
1: We really appreciate you taking time to talk to us about this book. I'm sure things have been crazy. (laughs) A little (laughs) bit,
4: a little bit. Which is
1: always good. Congratulations on the the book, its huge success. Some of the other writers joining us to talk about this topic, Reginald Dwayne Betts and Zach Lazar in our last episode, and Damaris later in the show, write with the incarcerated at the center of the narrative. Your book does that, but also something else. By telling the story of Celestial, a woman in a pretty good marriage that becomes much harder when her husband is incarcerated.
4: I started writing this novel entirely from Celestial's point of view because as a writer, I like to write kind of to the left or to the right of the topic. I don't like to I don't like to write about kind of a social or political issue head on. So I was really interested in the collateral effects of incarceration on 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 a marriage, but when I was writing the story only from her point of view, I felt like I didn't have the whole story, that I couldn't tell her story without telling his story, and the challenge then became balancing how much, it's almost like writing this novel about a marriage was almost like being in a marriage where the question for me as a writer was how much of her life is defined by his life? And to what extent is she not defined by his predicament? And this was a constant push and pull because of the emotions involved, the obligation, and also, you know, all of us, even if we don't use the term social justice, we all have a commitment to it, and it governs how we live our lives.
1: Well, that was one of the things I've heard you talk about, this idea that, well, that you had first been researching wrongful imprisonment, and then it was hard to write about it because everyone agreed that that was a bad thing, right? And that the key was discovering that it was about the, this marriage and Celestial and Roy and overhearing a couple uh, say something at a mall uh, that, that made you think of their story originally. And that then you, you put them, you had two characters that had ethical positions that didn't have a clear answer.
4: Well, yes, because when you look at a um a wrongfully incarcerated man. I always say that they call it wrongful incarceration because it is wrong. <laughs> and and yeah. fiction, I think, is when as when you take the place where there is a certain moral ambiguity and kind of harass that. And in the case of this marriage, we have a young couple. They're in a pretty good marriage, and he is in prison for something he did not do, but. How does that then affect the marriage? And what I came to really understand was in order for their marriage to be mutually satisfying, each of them would have to be an extraordinary spouse. And that is what I realized that mass incarceration makes it where ordinary people have to be extraordinary. And that is so much to carry for either of them.
1: And I love the way that you... Before the event that leads to Roy's incarceration in the book, you you talk about the background of their marriage. You start, you plant seeds that are going to be problems, you know, or might be as they would have been if nothing had happened, right, in the marriage, if he'd never been arrested. I thought that felt like so, such a really, was that there at the beginning, or did you realize, like, okay, I've got to set this, you know, I've got to plant these seeds early on so that then I could use that stuff later on in the book?
4: I like to write characters that feel like they live in a world, not that they live in a book. And so I feel like characters who live in a book don't have problems. Like I didn't want to set them up symbolically like they were the perfect couple and then disaster struck. I wanted them to feel like an average, average couple with average couple problems. You know, he has a little bit of a wandering eye. (laughs) Um, She's not sure she is even cut out to be a wife. They've only been married 18 months because yeah. I feel like a lot of times when characters have problems that are symbolic, like being wrongfully incarcerated, a black man wrongfully incarcerated for a rape in America, that feels so symbolic. And when things start being overly symbolic, that people stop seeming real. And I needed to really ask myself, how does this injustice intersect with an ordinary love story?
2: I thought one of the really nice ways that you did that, too, is with the the characters of Celestial and Roy's parents, who are these continuous threads throughout the story, watching their support for the young couple take different forms, um, different models of their marriages, and uh, their different economic statuses. And that is sort of a a tight line through the story as well, and it it proceeds. Roy's predicament and then also carries on much past it. And we see sort of different stances there, too. And I love the characters of the parents. They're so
4: great. Well, I also feel like the parents, for me, well, thank you for for liking them. (laughs) I should say that. Um, But I think they represent also the voice of a previous generation all roy's life his mother is fearful that her son will go to jail she is not fearful that her son will be a criminal but she's fearful that her son will go to jail or some other mishap will befall him just because he is a black boy who grew up to be a black man and you know this has completely shaped her parenting style and celestial's father he supports roy because roy is he wasn't even that crazy about Roy as a son-in-law in in the beginning. But once Roy became an imprisoned person, then he became symbolic of all the struggles of Black manhood. And he wants his daughter to do her part to support her incarcerated husband. And I feel that a lot of the characters have kind of a, a limited imagination in what support looks like. They can only see her supporting him they want her to support him the way Penelope looks at Odysseus and the Odyssey. And you know, that was written in 45 BC. So how does a family go on after the husband is incarcerated? Is the answer that the wife should be kind of suspended in amber as a monument to his struggles? Mm. Or is there another way that she can support, can she support him without sacrificing her dreams?
2: Right, there's this model of martyrdom, which I think gets valorized pretty quickly in a lot of different communities, um, and particularly for women. And I was, in between reading your book, I was reading statistics about how mass incarceration affects families in the U.S., and I was thinking about, you know, you gesture at Roy's experience of uh, life in prison, but a lot of the details are also, of course, what it is like for Celestial to be alone, not, she's, she's still a wife, but without her husband present. So then she begins to ask, is she a wife? So, what is her experience like that that sort of takes at least for me as in as i was reading the book that was sort of front and center so i'm quoting some statistics from 2015 and for our listeners we'll link to this report that i looked at these are from forward together and the ella baker center for human rights and research action design so about one in every four women and two of five black women are related to someone who is incarcerated and in 63 percent of cases family members on the outside were responsible for the costs associated with conviction and and trial and court-related costs. And 83% of those family members are women. And there's this part in the book, you know, there's these references to, is Celestial going to put money on the books for Roy? Celestial has a business of her own. Like, how is she going to realize that dream? Um, There's some references to the men of this community having this dream of quote-unquote, sitting their women down, meaning that the women would not have to work. And Celestial, um, Celestial's story is very different.
4: I mean, Celestial has to support... She's, she financially supports Roy while he is in prison. And, I mean, in this novel, she is a woman of some means because her father is um, an inventor and, and has a very profitable patent. But in, in more commonly... Working class women are supporting men who are in prison and it devastates their lives. I don't know if you read Evicted, which won the Pulitzer a couple of years ago, but that is one of the costs associated with incarcerated husbands and also sons. You know, it's a leading cause of black female poverty and eviction. The phone calls are so expensive. I correspond with some people who are in prison. And sometimes for the holidays, you know, they'll give you an opportunity, you'll get an opportunity to buy like a Christmas box that I have like some Cheetos, some honey buns and other junk food, probably $10 worth of junk food. And the cost to send that box is $95. And just imagine that multiplied over every month, all the time, the calls. If he wants a pair of socks, you have to buy his socks. If he needs a pair of underwear, you have to buy that. Everything that prisoners need to make their lives less difficult. It's sold. It's almost, imagine if you had to do all your shopping in the airport, you know, with the incredible markups. That's what it's like. And it's not terribly dissimilar from when people were sharecropping and they had to buy everything from the company store at the same kind of markup.
1: It's so amazing that these repetitions come in when we start talking to people. I mean, for instance, we talked to Zach Lazar two weeks ago about Angola He was talking about the prisoners there are forced to work in the fields. They get paid five cents an hour and work up to 20 cents an hour. And also it looks like sharecropping because there's white guys on horses with shotguns overseeing the prisoners. You know, it looks like slavery, you know, in in certain ways. Um, And also the economic component that we talked about last week with Dwayne Betts, talking about the way that, you know, the private prison industry uses imagery about prison to sort of advertise the need for itself. And this, what you're talking about here, is a is a third way of thinking about the economics uh, of prison that we I had not thought of and I found just brilliant. Uh, I just wanted to say that I appreciate you bringing it up.
4: Well, thank you. I mean, these little details, see, for me as a novelist, the little details are where I find the story. When I was writing this, you know, very... Only about, say, 20 percent of the book takes place when Roy is in prison. And I wanted to show the deprivation of prison. But, you know, when you read a novel, you are asked to experience vicariously what the characters experience. And prison is brutal. And I did not want to vicariously experience brutality in writing it, nor did I want to subject readers to brutality. So I had to try to find in the details, small things that will just give you a sense of the claustrophobia of, of I call it the minutia of deprivation. Um, I read a book called Surviving Justice, which is oral histories of wrongfully incarcerated men, which is put together by McSweeney's. And one man just spoke so endlessly about the desire for fresh fruit. Uh-huh. And it's it's such a small thing, but it's was symbolic. And it. I felt everything in what he had lost in his desire. What he wanted was, I believe, a lemon. But in the novel, Roy, you know, debases himself for a
1: pear. I'm a person who thinks a lot about structure in books and time. And in, the, in your novel, time passes in the form of letters in one section. I realized when I got to the middle of it that it, they're referring to three years, you know, had gone by that had passed very quickly, you know, and been in a compressed way. Um, and I, I wondered how you thought about depicting the long effects of incarceration, how it might affect one prisoner to not know the length of his sentence or how it might affect people over generations even.
4: Well, you know, I do think Roy is imprisoned for five years, but he thought he would be in prison for 12 years Celestial thought he would be in prison for 12 years. Had she known he was only going to be in prison, I say only, but had she known his sentence would be five years, would she have made different choices? Had he known his sentence was five years, would he have comported himself differently? I mean, we. I guess, you know, they don't know and living in that, living at the mercy of the state, yeah. as he puts it informs every little thing he does. It informs his expectations of her. It's, I mean, the expression that keeps coming to my mind is that it's just too much. It's too much to ask of a person to live that way. And with marriage, unlike his mother, his mother is going to be his mother, whether he's in prison or not. And she can be his devoted mother and still have other roles in her life where she can be herself. With Celestial as a wife, to be the wife of an incarcerated person, it has to become all that you do. And so when she's looking at the length of his sentence, the question is different.
2: I wanna go back for a second to um, thinking about Celestial, who's such an extraordinary character, um, and who, as you mentioned before, maybe it's, it's not clear that she is cut out to be a wife at all, and she's very independent, and she has this business, and her business is really amazing and, and a little bit odd. And I wondered, Celestial makes dolls that are called poupées and they're beautiful objects and they're also, I think, deeply symbolic and play a lot of different roles over the course of the narrative. How did you come up with the
4: dolls? Well, for one, I have a very brilliant friend whose name is Cosby Cabrera, and she has a doll business. Cosby is of Honduran descent, and so her dolls are called Munecas. So that was how I got the idea of the name. But I also thought of a woman making dolls as such an ideal way to look at the challenges of a woman artist, because the dolls are art objects. They go in museums. They are... You know, she spends years sometimes on the dolls. But because they're dolls, people also think of them simply as toys for little girls. And for her symbolically, with how children are so fraught in it, I, in this novel, I think they also function symbolically. But I do feel that as like as a woman writer, sometimes I'll say, and I was very reluctant to call this book An American Marriage for this reason, that I tell people I'm a novelist And if I'm on a plane and the man next to me on the plane will say, oh, have you written a romance? You know, there's this idea that even if you make art, it's somehow not meaningful. And I was really kind of playing with that with Celeste. But also, you know, she makes dolls and she is working out her frustration and fear and regret and sadness about Roy in her artwork. And she makes a doll that looks like him. Well, I should say she always made dolls that look like him. But her dolls now reflect his predicament in prison, and he's really feels really exposed and angry that she would use his situation as inspiration for her art,
2: yeah, that that was the exactly the thing I was thinking about as Whitney was talking about how you handled time because the dolls are also I mean in certain ways they're able to reflect the changing state of their relationship. But of course, the dolls are also frozen in time themselves. and and you you mentioned also intimacy, this sort of Um, The way that Roy feels exposed by this. When you thought about writing about intimacy between Roy and Celestial, or Celestial and her childhood friend Andre, who's also a big character, and between Roy and Andre, who are friends and allies of a sort at various points in the book, how did you choose to depict the state's theft of privacy? How did you think about that disruption of intimacy?
4: Well, one thing like when Celestial makes the doll that looks like Roy, it's a doll that's a child figure and the child is wearing a prison uniform. And she's looking at that to, you know, question whether or not it is his fate to have been in prison as a black man. And she wins a prize for it. But he feels, you know, like I said, he feels exposed. And but he also feels that she she didn't tell anyone that her husband had been incarcerated. Instead, she just says that she's interested in the topic, and he feels that she has exposed him, but not exposed herself by revealing her relationship to him. But she doesn't want to, and is his cellmate who says, of course, she's not going to tell anyone her husband is in prison, because once she says she's a prisoner's wife, it's so many racist stereotypes come along with that and how is she to be taken seriously as an artist if people are you know projecting all this racism onto her because of her husband's predicament and it's true I mean when you choose to reveal your proximity to incarceration then the stigma does in fact you know she will share the stigma and she and you can see how she wouldn't want to and he wants her to I think just as a symbolic gesture. But I think she feels that even if she were to allow the stigma to rest upon her, it would not help him. So she doesn't understand why he's so insistent on her doing it. And I think it's because, you know, there's this thing that says when a loved one is incarcerated, that everyone else does time, but only on the outside. And I thought a lot about that. And I think that the truth is a little more complicated, right? Because first off, is the incarcerated person the one on the outside or the person on the inside? It seems that to say the family is outside, the family is inside society, and the incarcerated person actually is the one that's outside.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
4: And furthermore, the problem with this marriage particularly is that she is not doing time on the outside. She's living her life, and he is not living his life And he sees loyalty is if she his life is kind of frozen and he wants her to freeze her life, too, so that they can remain together as a couple. And I mean, people sometimes say that she's very selfish, but I don't know. Sometimes if he is it selfish to ask her to wait or is it selfish for her not to wait or is it not about selfishness at all, but just about two human beings trying to figure out how they can remain connected in these extraordinary circumstances.
1: Speaking of intimacy, would you read to us from the book? There's an amazing passage with some scenes uh, of Celestial and Roy and Andre and their families in court. Maybe you could read that part.
4: Okay. It turns out that I watch too much television. I was expecting a scientist to come and testify about DNA. I was looking for a pair of handsome detectives to burst into the courtroom at the last minute, whispering something urgent to the prosecutor. Everyone would see that this was a big mistake, a major misunderstanding. We would all be shaken but appeased. I fully believed that I would leave the courtroom with my husband beside me. Secure in our home, we would tell people how no black man is really safe in America. 12 years is what they gave him. We would be 43 years old when he was released. I couldn't even imagine myself at such an age. Roy understood that 12 years was an eternity because he sobbed right there at the defendant's table. His knees gave way and he fell into his chair. The judge paused and demanded that Roy bear this news on his feet. He stood again and cried, not like a baby, but in a way that only a grown man can cry, from the bottom of his feet, up through his torso, and finally through his mouth. When a man wails like that, you know it's all the tears he was never allowed to shed. From Little League disappointment to teenage heartbreak, all the way to whatever injured his spirit just last year. As Roy howled, my fingers kept worrying a rough patch of skin beneath my chin, a souvenir of scar tissue. When they did what I remember as kicking in the door, what everyone else remembers as opening it with the plastic key, After the door was open, however it was open, we were both pulled from the bed. They dragged Roy into the parking lot, and I followed, lunging for him, wearing nothing but the white slip. Someone pushed me to the ground, and my chin hit the pavement. My slip rode up, showing everything to everyone as my tooth sank into the soft skin of my bottom lip. Roy was on the asphalt beside me, barely beyond my grasp, speaking words that didn't reach my ears. I don't know how long we lay there, parallel like burial plots. Husband, wife, what God has brought together, let no man tear asunder.
3: Oh, so good. Thank you. I love that
2: last line. I just, I would never thought of that last line as an argument against incarceration. And of course it, it absolutely is. And then also just the way that you almost, you travel through time through all of those images. It's just, that was one of my favorite passages in the book.
4: I mean, her husband is literally ripped away from her, and she has to figure out what to do next, how to do next, what does life look like. You know, they have been torn asunder. You know, that's part of the wedding vows, but you don't really think about it in a very literal way.
1: I thought a lot myself uh, when I read the letters that Roy and and Celestial send back and forth between each other, because they're sort of fainting and dodging and trying to feel each other out, oddly enough, even though they're supposed to be writing supportive letters to each other, you know, once he's in prison. Um, I thought, God, how difficult would it be if my wife and I had to negotiate and talk about things only through letters, you know? Um, And
4: also, I mean, how could you have a marriage if what all you're supposed to communicate about is supporting one another? You know what I mean? Like, it's unreasonable to ask of both of them.
2: There's one part where they're mad at each other, and then one letter, I'm trying to remember who says it to who, one, one of them says to the other, When you come for your next visit, basically, sort of, please don't still be mad because we don't have time. Um, yes, Celestia like, says that to Roy. Yeah, and it's sort of like, like the marriage con- has to contract and expand in ways that are unnatural around the strictures of the time that they are allowed because just sort of the na- there's no time for the natural feeling to progress.
4: Yes, and no everydayness, and yes, and not having the luxury to be mad at your spouse—that's a right, not a privilege. You have, you should have the right to be mad at your spouse, but they can't afford to be mad. They can't—it's like they can't afford any normality. And they're also, like you were saying before, about the way that intimacy is lost. You know, they only see each other in public, and whenever you are in public, there's always a level of performance. So they have to perform their relationship when they see each other. They perform in the letters because the letters, unlike real words that evaporate, letters are forever. And you're creating – they have to create a document. They're creating a paper trail of their relationship. And they're just two ordinary people who were in love. And they these extraordinary circumstances and all of the gender roles are turned up to 50 in this situation. <laughs> like it's yeah. just – It's so much this, and it comes back to the state, even though the novel is about two individuals. And even though the topic is mass incarceration, it's really the incarceration of this individual, Roy, and his wife, Celestial. But the weight of the state is in everything they do. Even when Celestial's father is chastising her for some of her choices, her father says, that man is a hostage of the state.
1: I couldn't help but think of, of uh, some comments that uh, some of our other interviewees have, have made about bureaucracy, you know, and the bureaucracy of the state and how it dehumanizes people, you know, moments that might seem mundane to some people really wreck others' lives. There's a line about how long Roy's in jail before his case goes to trial. And and you don't avoid talking about the bureaucracy here. You show it. How did you think about that?
4: Well, you know, the, bureaucrat- the bureaucratic detail that stunned me most in my research is that They can tell you you're getting out on Wednesday, but let's say the guy whose job it is to process that paper isn't going to be there Wednesday. He's going on vacation. You can wait until he gets back or he might spring you before he leaves, that there's just a certain randomness to it. I I would have thought it would be a lot more orderly. Right. Like like Roy is released, which gets the plot going. Roy's released 10 days early. And so he doesn't even get a chance to properly you know, say goodbye to the people who have become his family, you know, while he's in prison because they let him loose 10 days early. So his cellmate comes back and Roy's just gone. But they say, it's time for you to go, you go. And he says, you know, a judge says it's time for you to go to prison, you go to prison. You're just like being moved around like a chess piece, just not even speak- as elegant as a chess piece, like a marble, <laughs>
1: more so. Just speaking of the uh, mechanics of this, as a novelist, you mentioned some books that you read. Did you talk to people? What was the kind of what was your research building process like for for this book?
4: You know, the it was the oral histories that helped me the most. Yeah. Because I needed the little details. You know, I read the New Jim Crow, I watched documentaries, and but the thing that really got me in the, were the oral histories of just the the small details because with a novel, you know, um I always say you have to write about people and their problems, not problems and their people.
1: (laughs) I might steal that. That's good.
4: Yeah, (laughs) have at it. I, I want to spread the gospel of that to everyone who's writing a novel. So when I was doing a lot of research and getting a lot of statistics, I felt like I was making the people, it was almost like the predicament was the music and I was making my characters dance. And part of the way that you... Can deprive your characters of their humanity is that you reduce them to their predicaments. So actually, I spent a lot of time trying to think about Celestial and Roy's marriage as a marriage that happened to be intersected with this huge social problem, just so that I could make sure they had the whole range of experience and didn't become overly symbolic or didn't seem to be working toward my own political views. And that was really tricky because when you let your characters off the ideological leash, anything can happen. But I think that's what makes the novel a page turner, Mm. because the characters don't know that they're in a book. They think they're in love.
1: (laughs) I just wanted to mention this. One other thing is that um, and it seems like we have to mention it since today is the day that all of the Starbucks are closed for. I don't know what they're calling it specifically, racial sensitivity like anti-bias training? training? Anti-bias yes, training. Anti-bias training. Yes,
4: they're learning not to call the police on people. Well, yes.
1: that's, what, that's what I thought of when I was thinking, you know, obviously talking about your book, because there is the character of the woman who makes this accusation that is wrong. Um, and I, I think part of what the book is an argument for is in, in a way saying like, look at how easy it is to ruin someone's life like this?
4: It was very tricky because, you know, like we're in the era of Me Too, and I definitely did not want to be suggesting that women are not to be believed. But I also know that eyewitness testimony, although it's the most compelling, is also the least reliable. And the woman was shown, as she had met Roy before at the ice machine, so she had met him in the hotel but all you need is one shady lineup. Because once that victim, particularly because when you're dealing with a stranger attack, as you know, most sexual assault crimes, the person knows exactly who assaulted her mm-hmm. because she knows the person in real life. But with the stranger thing, all you need is a one a lineup where one picture is different than the other, or the the victim can read from the police's body language, or maybe even the police touch the photo they want her to choose. And it imprints on her memory. And she believes herself to be telling the truth. I did not want to make this story kind of a relitigation of um, Emmett Till.
0: Mm-hmm.
4: I really think that this was um, the police set him up. And right. the woman was a tool for that setup, I believe. But yeah, it's very easy to ruin someone's life. I mean, even had Roy not been found guilty. Um, being held without bail, all of that would have ruined his life or would have definitely set his life back. Well, you know what? I'm not going to say that Roy's life is ruined because there's a part of me that wants to say this man's life was ruined because it seems to underscore the seriousness of the problem. And, but I had to learn in writing this book that in allowing the character, I had to learn to allow the characters hope. And because if not, they become reduced to their predicaments. So his life has not been ruined. His life was derailed. His marriage was ruined, but he still has his life. And I just say that in case there's anyone out there who is in his situation, I don't want that person to hear me say their life is ruined. Their life has been damaged and he should be compensated for that. But I cannot say that his life is ruined. I just can't do that to him.
2: Well, and that's Roy is such a, um, he is a, a very alive character, and that you know, he looks at the woman who has accused him, and he is able in his interior, he extends sympathy to her. You know, he looks at her and he thinks, This woman was attacked, um, just not by me. And he's also someone who, I mean, there are a lot of characters in the book who are very funny, there are a lot of conversations in the book that are very funny, and they feel fully fleshed. But I think also, as you say, I mean, that that point about that damage and that that theft of time, which I think is the thing that always strikes me like you can't rewind that you cannot do that
4: right you me. can't you can't get your life you cannot you will never recover the life you lost you know you can try and make a new life and your new life can be meaningful but you will never recover what you have lost that is the truth and that that's why it's so important not to do this to people because we our lives are short as human beings our lives are short and to still 12 years 15 years, 20 years of someone's life is unforgivable.
2: Um, Terry, such a great conversation. So wonderful to have you with us. Thanks again for joining us and congratulations.
4: Thank you so much for having me and thank you for caring about this. It's important that everyday people talk about this because this is a major American problem.
1: Thank you. Thanks for being on the show.
4: Thank you much. And now we'd
2: like to welcome Damaris B. Hill to the show. Damaris is the editor of the essay collection, The Fluid Boundaries of Suffrage and Jim Crow, Staking Claims in the American Heartland, and the author of the 2015 poetry collection, Visible Textures, and the forthcoming collection, A Bound Woman is a Dangerous Thing, which honors Black women who have had experiences with incarceration. It's scheduled to be published by Bloomsbury in 2019.
3: She teaches at the University of Kentucky. Damaris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you, Whitney and Sidney. Well, we're,
1: we're super excited to talk to you. Because, um, uh, look, we love the new book. Um, and in this two-episode discussion we've been having on mass incarceration in America, the incarceration of black women and more generally the ways black women are bound in American society is something we really haven't talked about yet. And yet you point out, citing the sentence, sentencing project, that between 1984 and in 2014, the number of incarcerated women increased by more than 700%. How did you arrive Mm -hmm. at this subject?
3: Well, um, back when I was attending the University of Kansas for my PhD, um, I began to study the long histories of um, black women in the United States. And I started thinking a lot about what it means to be confined. And um, that general curiosity and questioning um, led me to think about women and incarceration. And it was there that I learned about these statistics. I actually think the statistics specifically for black women are slightly higher. It might be something like 814 percent.
1: Increase uh, in that same time period, you mean? Yeah. In the
3: same time period. Um, also... I started to think about it because of uh, some of the things that happened during my black girlhood experience on the East Coast. Um, I I guess I came of age in Elizabeth, New Jersey. um, And during that time, there was a rise um, in addiction related to the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the following years, not only did many people I know go to jail, but many women that I looked up to in the community found themselves victims of drug abuse, and as a result found themselves um, trying to uh, struggle against poverty and um, you know ultimately ended up. Uh, incarcerated. Some of them did, and so, so the combination of my curiosity and the personal experience um, really inspired me to look very deeply at the issue of incarceration within the United States, and forces me to question why two million children in the United States have at least one incarcerated parent. Mm. I think it was something um, when I began the research, like 80 percent of the women that are incarcerated make less than twenty thousand dollars a year. Wow. And supporting families on on that low of an income. So I think, one, it's really a financial issue. But I also believe that this the mass incarceration rate is um, akin to to another form of servitude that we have embedded within American history, and for that reason, I'm also questioning the the profit margin associated with um, mass incarceration.
2: So interesting to hear you. I mean, even the, the diction you're using, which I feel like um, it sounds like you're choosing it very carefully to save victims
0: of mm-hmm. drug
2: abuse, and yes. I'm, Right, and I'm reminded of the recent conversation about the opioid epidemic and the ways in which people are paying attention to that and to white victims of drug abuse in a way that that addiction was so different um, when we were talking about other drug epidemics. And you're talking about that the link between poverty and incarceration, which has come up in some of our earlier conversations, Mm -hmm. uh, and the sort of powerful history of incarceration in the United States and the way that. Um, it seems like in so many cases, people are incarcerated almost as a, as a punishment for poverty, which exactly. is so upsetting to me. Um, the book is dedicated um, to your ancestors. And you talk about the importance of honoring ancestors in the African-American tradition. And you've written poems addressed to famous historical figures like Lucille Clifton or Eartha Kitt. Uh, but you also focus on lesser known historical mm-hmm. figures like Annie Cutler and Alice Clifton or Ida Howard. I'm wondering what it was about their lives that spoke to you and thought made you connect their lives to the present, made you want to write poetry about
3: them. So in 2009, I picked up a book, Colored Amazons by Dr. Callie Ann Gross, who's an anthropologist uh, now at Rutgers University. And it was a case study about uh, Eastern Penitentiary in Philadelphia. Uh, I believe the years that she looks uh, to are between 1910 and I think 1950. Um, But I began, I'm sorry, 1890 to 1910, I believe. Um, I began reading the book Just, you know, as you write, you should always be reading, I say, twice as many hours as you're writing, right? So that's my practice.
1: Do you hear that, students?
3: (laughs) And so um, I was reading the book, and even though it was a historical text and a social science text, the case studies and the bits of... um, archival testimony from these black women within the court system was so moving that I began writing poems about them the minute I finished the book.
1: You know, one of the things that what struck me about those poems was that the conditions in prison in the late 1800s were just yes. insane. Um, and yes. you write about that in your poem, uh, Stewing, which is based on a woman named Laura Williams, who appears in <laughs> Callie and Gross's uh, book. Could you talk to us about the genesis of, of that specific poem and then maybe read it for our listeners?
3: Um, I, I would love to read it for your listeners. Um, I'll read it first and then I'll talk about it. The OK, theme, sounds great. Poem. Stewing. I dream of hounds, their teeth loose in my vein. Their howls consume me. They growl and feast. She whispers not to run. I can't refrain. Nightmares of this cell stirring in my brain. To survive, I would suckle possums' teats. I dream of hounds, their teeth loose in my veins. Sweat pours from my body. It's heavy rain. My intestine rotting, rising. My tongue reeks. She whispers not to run. I can't refrain. Tuberculosis fevers stew my pain. Curdle my stomach's bile. Vomit creeps. I dream of hounds. Their teeth loosen my veins. Awake to my own barking. My voice strained. The nurse's compress grips me like a leash. She whispers not to run, I can't refrain. She tells me to hush as I try to explain. The stale air in this jail folds in, death's crease. I dream of hounds, their teeth loosed in my veins. She whispers not to run, I cannot refrain. So that poem Stewing um, came from me thinking about the oppressive state that would already be incarceration in the 1890s and the limits of personhood within that space. But what would it also mean for your body to be under attack from a vicious disease like tuberculosis? a very painful disease. And I thought that her only reprieve would be sleep when she was in a dream state. It's so powerful. I love having films read on this podcast. Uh,
2: one of the other things I noticed about your collection is that it's not just about women who have been incarcerated. It's also about women who are dangerous and women who, in the case of someone like Annie Cutler or Ella Jackson or Emily, murder people, not to put it too bluntly. I wonder Mm -hmm. how you think about that and in your examination of what it means to be bound.
3: Now, let's be clear. I don't I don't approve of murder on any scale. Right. But in these particular um, situations, what I think is a unifying thread between these women who have killed is that they felt that they didn't have any other resort Right. I felt that um, or I interpreted that the killing was the last defensive measure before their own physical lives were taken because their social and emotional lives were already gone, if that makes any sense.
1: So the binding, like the, the the term bound in the title, I mean, we talked mm-hmm. about incarceration, but it also seems like you're talking about being bound socially at that particular time or whatever time you're writing about. Exactly, right?
3: exactly. Okay. Being bound socially, being bound socially and being bound to one another. Um, oh, okay, right, right. And bound also means to to spring forth, right? So if you're so bound and so constrained and you've decided not to die. Then you only have the option of springing forth. Or to move past. And I think that um, in the cases of the murders, the women that murder. I didn't foresee them trying to spring forward i i saw or i interpreted their actions to be their last defensive
1: act I get that in the sense of Ella Jackson but in that the, the, the mm-hmm. one that was really complicated for me and, and I mean complicated in a good way I find these mm-hmm. these poems are really challenging and interesting is is Emily Lee and, and Stella mm-hmm. this, there's this sort of love triangle right, right. Um, and M., it, I mean unless I'm misreading the poem in some mm-hmm. way you know Emily kills her this woman who she wanted to be in love with
3: right I think I think in this Particular situation, M- Emily does kill Stella, and she kills Stella because Stella has decided to get married to someone else. I think I interpreted um, Emily's emotional response to be one that said, I have no life without you.
1: Right. That's really interesting.
3: And- Right. And what does that mean in the context of um, um, heteronormative marriage rights and vows? What does it mean if you cannot transition or assimilate into a heteronormative culture? Is your life over?
1: So one of the most controversial of these figures, perhaps because she's still alive, um, mm-hmm. is Asada Shakur. Uh, she was a member of the Black Panther Party. She was pulled over mm-hmm. by New Jersey state troopers in 1973. I'm not going to give her a whole life story, but these are just the backgrounds in case for so readers would know. There was yeah. a gun battle. She was shot. Two other people died. One of her friends, uh, Zayad uh, Shakur, and a state trooper named Werner Forster, who was shot twice in the head. Those people died. She was convicted of murder in 1977. She escaped prison, which ironically is one of those things that Dwayne Betts was telling us never happens in our in our last Mm -hmm. episode. She escaped in 1979 and fled to Cuba where she still lives. Could you talk to us about her?
3: Um, Okay, the first thing I want to say is I'm I'm not wholly convinced in my literary imagination or just in my reading of the events that she actually murdered that police officer. I think it would be very hard for someone to murder or to hold, to murder someone when they were shot um, through their chest and out of their shoulder blade. And I think it would be almost impossible for them to hold a rifle. So I want to say that part. I'm not sure.
1: Right. The testimony was that or at least there was a medical examiner who said uh, that she had been shot probably with her hands up, that she would have been hard for her to pick up or fire a gun. Mm -hmm. Although she was she was convicted for murder for aiding and abetting. So it it wasn't really to the point whether she had actually killed the guy or not. But morally, I guess that's different.
3: Right. And I want to I want to. I want to I do want to add that complexity to it because, you know, um, we oftentimes call her a murderer. Right. But it's something different to be in the car with your friends. You're pulled over. uh, You fear for your life. And we don't know if the two people that she was riding with attacked the police officers are, n- are not first. I want to say first, but we do know that there's an altercation. And if you, if there's one woman, four men that are already engaged in, in violence, that really reduces your options of stability <laughs> as a woman. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like if we just think about being in that urgent situation, Right. Sure. So um, I'm 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 not I'm not sure what choices any of us would make in that situation. I decided to write about um, Asada Shakur um, because this book was born out of a lot of pain um, related to um, the recent shootings of uh, people by police, the media's parade of the murders put me in a very dark place for a while. Um, I have decided to live and not to die, right? And so a part of me nursing my psyche back to health was researching all of the Black women that have survived America. in some significant way right like to to kind of like get the cliff notes on how to survive america in a space where you are socially bound it seems because of um the way because uh, you're including
1: the restrictions of gender there. I mean, one of the things that uh, exactly. uh, is the facts of uh, Sada Shakur's life is that she had problems with the Black Panther Party because there wasn't really much opportunity for female leadership in that party.
3: Exactly. And the way that fem- females were treated in that party and marginalized, there wasn't space for someone who may have been I'm not sure because I don't know her but seemingly a strategic genius. In terms of political activism, someone who knew the law but had no voice, that would be very difficult, particularly if you are committed to this cause because you love a broader community or a broader community of people or you're a humanist, right? So in this way, Asada Shakur is very much like Harriet Tubman for me.
1: Yeah, you mentioned that. Yeah.
3: For me because they were both committed to to loving their community so much that they did not want them to be in bondage in any way. And I, I really like that Asada Shakur is,
2: is one of the women in the book who has, there's multiple poems about her and you the whole thing moves through time. But with Asada mm-hmm. Shakur, we get to go through her life mm-hmm. uh, at different points. Mm-hmm. Which, and then there's also this terrific image of her. And I think also, I mean, you, you're talking about um, police shootings and the sort of parading of black bodies by the media. Mm-hmm. And by using this picture of her, I wonder how you, you thought about um, putting in these pictures because she looks so she looks so joyous in this picture. Mm-hmm. And sort of so powerful. Um,
3: yes. I, I, I do think that the... Um, the The landscape is um, saturated with mutilated black bodies at this point. Right. Um, and not only did I not want to contribute to that um, image of uh, black bodies in a way that would make it normalized. But I also want us to recognize all of these women in this book as human beings. Right. That actually have complex and multifaceted lives that are not limited to the historical rendition or the popular renditions of their um, of their identities and personalities. So it was important to, to show Asada Shakur happy, not um, in the versions of the mugshots or um, to be bound in handcuffed or um, any of those ways. For me, it was important. And she became a kind of a rallying
2: cry at Ferguson, if I'm remembering correctly.
3: I, I believe she did. I believe she did. Um, I wish I was more informed about that. Um, but sometimes for my own um, mental health instability, I have to limit my access to news coverage. And I don't mean that to be ignorant. I no. mean that in the most self care way I can. If I'm going to write, if I'm not going to be debilitated by the parade of um, mutilated black bodies, then then I have to limit my exposure to mass media coverage. So, how do you when you're doing that as a researcher?
2: How do you how do you do that as a researcher?
3: And- oh, so okay, so this is where the interview gets very personal. Whenever I am not writing, I'm almost assuredly watching stand-up comedy. (laughs) (laughs) or Listening to stand-up comedy. Like I have albums, I have Moms Mobley albums, I have Richard Pryor albums, I have Red Fox albums. Uh, It plays in the background when I'm cleaning up. It is what I'm listening to when I'm doing dishes. It is what I'm watching when I'm watching
1: television so interesting we should have, maybe we should do an episode where we talk about what writers listen to when they're not doing their work because i remember when i was writing about the war in iraq and and it was very very you know distressing mm-hmm. and caused anxiety for me um uh you know i listened to like sports talk that was the thing
3: <laughs> you know yeah I, I think we need that balance and even when i teach um When I teach African-American studies courses, because I do teach creative writing um, as well, but when I teach African-American studies courses, um, I have made a commitment to my students to be honest with them. And so I try to give them all the facts and the complexities of these uh, thematic situations. But I also tell them when days are gonna be particularly hard. And I tell them to like watch comedy the night before and when we finish with class like go home and watch comedy because if you don't you're going to be um, dealing with this pain for a couple of days in a way that may not be healthy.
2: That's so smart and so thoughtful for your students also and, and um, I'm just thinking about it. I mean I started teaching a humor class at one point because I needed a reason to uh, <laughs> go and look at a lot of funny stuff and mm-hmm. um, having students in conversation with me about it was also really, really helpful. And in your preface, you talk about um, being engaged in resistance of all kinds and understanding the fluidity of my emotions. I'm quoting here, um, Mm -hmm. like wanting to grab a gun and turn it toward my threats before setting it inside my mouth and then finally locking it away. And... I'm curious about how Asada Shakur's presence chimes or provides a counterpoint to some of the other figures you mentioned in the book, like Lucille Clifton or Sonia Sanchez.
3: Well, um, again, to go back to Harriet Tubman, um, I, I see Harriet Tubman and Asada Shakur leading parallel kind of lives in different time periods. When you are entering a conversation that is dominant and your voice is not dominant, if the dominant voice is tired of hearing your counter argument, there will be consequences to quell your voice. And um, I think all of these women engaged in some style of resistance but Asada Shakur and Harriet Tubman not only persisted um in their resistance efforts, but they actually got to enjoy whole lives before um before the dominant voice could quell them permanently.
1: Could you maybe read your poem about Sonia Sanchez for us?
3: Yes, yes. I would love to. Uh, I love Sonia Sanchez. She's such an inspiration as a writer, but also as a writer that is politically engaged uh, in ways that reflect her love for humanity. Um, Okay. This is for Sonia Sanchez. This Granny is Gangster is the title. Love wears a lanyard laced with readers. Love is a pair of bifocals, the rims on the nostrils, floating above flared lips. Love is a granny, a woman weaved from Alabama clay and concrete, one that can fold the names of your enemies in her tongue, a granny that sets out a candy dish full of sparkling laxatives for bullies. Sonia Sanchez has long been a soldier of love. She wields protests like the wind and they obey. At 82, she marches like she's leading a second line. Awe at her knees, her hips sway left and right. With her cane, she cracks blessings and calls your nearest kin. She speaks peace in a cadence of prayers. And when the army slithers down Broad Street, wanting weapons gilded from flesh, love checks in. She shows the recruiter she is a champion. Freedom can't be paid for with my grandchildren's lives. Her love is strong. It is all knuckles and knotted. One, two, three, and four. Love doesn't want your bloody war. I love this poem
2: in part because it, I think one form of resistance that is often kind of erased is the resistance of older people.
3: And absolutely, yeah. absolutely. We pretend that old people are senile. You know, the popular conception is that they're senile and they, they, they don't have wisdom. And also, like, they, they are not um, analytical, strategic and intellectual, not only wisdom, like memories, right, and experience, but they, they also know how to handle this, this, this time and place.
2: Exactly. So I thought that the fierceness was captured so precisely, and I really appreciated it because I think that some of the fiercest people I can think of in my own community, some of the people I admire the most are older women who have a history of activism, sometimes in very quiet ways, sometimes within activist collectives, uh, people who kind of set an example of resistance that I admire. Um, I did notice that the very last poems in this collection were about sons generally and your own son specifically.
1: And also about your yeah. service in the U.S. Air Force. Uh, I yes. personally have written about women in the armed forces. That was what my last novel was about. And so I wondered how your time in the military influenced the way you thought about the American system of law and order in this book.
3: My grandfather um, is a war veteran, and also my father, who is a minister is a war veteran. Um, he was a chaplain during Desert Storm. And so um, when I think about uh, nationhood and this Americanness, I'm, I'm very educated and understand that, um, that not everyone recognizes um, the civil rights of all citizens here. But considering that I once toted a gun to ensure those rights, I do not passively allow people not to allow... Me or anyone that I know to access those rights. Uh, this, um,
1: this may be a softball question, but uh, yeah, <laughs> so, you know, our very first episode was about Colin Kaepernick and the and the kneeling. And we you know we had uh, we had um, Matt Gallagher on, who's a veteran, mm-hmm. uh, and we also talked to Britt Bennett, uh, the novelist. But you know, it's interesting. What, what is interesting to me and anyone who spent time around service members is like. There's a very large minority population, people of color who are in the service, who are in the United United States Armed Services. And so nobody ever asked them what they think about Colin Kaepernick. How come that never comes up? You know, and I I thought I would ask you, what do you think?
3: Colin Kaepernick, if I played football, remotely watched football, I'd be kneeling with you. You hear me? Um. I'm in full support of Colin Kaepernick. I'm very disappointed in those who do not support Colin Kaepernick for 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 actually enacting his civil right. If he feels that the United States is not upholding their portion of the social contract to marginal... Well, I'm not even going to call... I'm not even going to say marginalized people, because there is nothing to the margins about people that are non-white in this country. Right. There's nothing marginal about it. Right. Absolutely. But if he feels that the United States is not upholding their social contract to people of color in the United States, and has chosen not only to voice his opinion, but to perform his opinion. Colin Kaepernick, I salute you for being a democratic agent in this country that wants to reject you. And for holding this country that you live in, that you pay taxes to, that you help to support and function accountable people of color.
1: Yeah. I mean, I I, I think that I thought that would be fun and interesting to hear you talk about that as a service member.
3: And as someone who doesn't watch football anyway, (laughs) I I would be protesting. And since we're talking about this particular point in the in the book, I mean, I want to caution everyone to not look at the situations that are happening in regards to civil rights and civic engagement as somebody else's problem. Because when civil rights are being infringed upon, it is like a mold. It is like a virus. It does not affect one person. It does not affect a targeted person. It affects us all. And if it hasn't reached your doorstep yet, be still. It'll come.
1: (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, look, the thing I said in that podcast, and I I believe, is that I'm not really quite sure that I understand how the national anthem became associated with the military exclusively. I mean, I thought it was the song about Americans, right? So, I mean – for me it's a song that's about it's about Malcolm X or you know Martin Luther King Jr. or Harriet Tubman yeah. as much as it is about the military. I don't I don't understand exactly. why it has to be exclusively a military song. That's not what it means to me.
3: And also ironically, I was talking about this the other day. All of the Americans that are most hated, like some of those people that you've already named, Anasada Shakur it's It's ironic that they're hated for demanding um, what what the United States social contract promised, right? But it's also when you reject those people, you re- you are rejecting their faith in that social contract. A person like Ashada Shakur, a person like Harriet Tubman, a person like Malcolm X, a person like Martin Luther King could have only been made in the United States of America under the U.S. Constitution. And those people had full faith in the U.S. Constitution and all of our governing bodies, including um, the document, the Declaration of Independence, which has no uh, no protection or no— It um, doesn't have legal think,
1: standing, but it says—it yeah, has like, that line right. that Ellison always refers to as well.
3: right. Um, But but they have faith. And when I say faith, nearly a religious type of faith in the political system. And that is why they engage with it.
1: And that line, of course, that we're referring to is all men are created equal.
3: All men are created equal. Right. And so if they didn't have faith in those documents that we hold to be so American, that these people would have never become actors within this democracy. And that's the irony that's always ignored in in American history.
1: Thanks so much for being on the show, Damaris.
3: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: And that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction backslash non backslash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the fiction, nonfiction podcast page is listed under the news tab. Post a link to the books we referenced this week on our LitHub show page, on Facebook at FNF Pod, and on Twitter at FNF Talk. Happy reading, and thanks to Aaron Saxon and Kevin Coder. They are co producing this show and will be with us all summer.